This is the full story. I'm Tom Kuser. Did anyone teach you how to manage money? I can remember in elementary school, we'd bring in our quarters and put them in the uh, manila or brown envelopes, and they would go into a savings account. Uh, Mechanics and Farmers, I think, was the bank that we were using back in the day. After that, well, mom with her so-called depression thinking taught me uh, how to uh, save pennies and balance that checkbook. And then uh, things, you know, evolved from there to the point where I sometimes do it well and sometimes I don't. And we'll hear more personal stories about personal finances throughout the show today. Right now, we begin with the Wakeman Boys and Girls Club in Bridgeport. When the club opens later this year, it'll offer students something new. It's a finance lab. That lab is a collaboration with Webster Bank in Stamford, which invested $100,000 to launch this program. The goal is to help students from low to moderate income areas develop skills that will lead to economic empowerment and financial success. For more on the project, we turn to Marissa Widener. She's the Chief Corporate Responsibility Officer for Webster Bank. And she joins us via Zoom. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Certainly. What was the inspiration, the impetus behind the development of the Finance Lab program? So one of the things that we wanted to do when we came together, it was a merger that happened in early February between Sterling National Bank and Webster Bank, and we became a larger Webster Bank. And we set out our strategy on how we were going to invest in the communities, and we launched a $6.5 billion community investment strategy over three years. One of the areas of focus from our philanthropic perspective was how are we going to make an impact in the communities, and what do the communities need? We had gone on a listening tour, and we heard from over 100 nonprofit organizations across our entire footprint to try and understand what are their needs, what would help them achieve their mission, what can the bank actually do to lend support? That's kind of a little bit of backstory, but fast forward, we got to the Finance Lab Initiative. And the Finance Lab Initiative is really around the impetus of, we need to get to young people early before they start making those financial decisions that are gonna impact their financial trajectory. Making the decisions early on, understanding the information. There's information that comes at our young people from all different directions, comes at people from all different directions, right? That's the reality. Ads here, sign up, open this account, do this, get this credit card, get this loan. How do we enable young people to distill all of that information to be able to make the decisions that are going to help them get the best return on their investment for their future? That's really where it came about. And then in terms of why partnering with the partners that we've selected, what we decided to do was realize we're a bank. We're not trying to be something that we're not. We need to partner with those folks that have the reach in the community that we want to be able to make. And so finding the right nonprofit partner that has the reach, that has the proven ability to execute, that has made an impact on the community, and that, quite frankly, is serving the communities that we really want to get ingrained with, that's how we decided to select, in this case, the Wakeman Boys and Girls Club. This is our third finance lab that we've launched since we came together as Webster Bank. Now, I recall way, way back in the day, elementary school, We had a program where you brought in a quarter, you put it in the little brown envelope from Mechanics and Farmers Bank, and 
that somehow turned into uh, an, an account. I guess it was an effort to teach us about banking or about saving money. How old should a child be to start learning about finances? Oh, I, I think kids should be learning about finances, to your point, in grade school. Um, and there's many programs that are out there that help deliver that. Unfortunately, it's not a requirement in all school districts to so have financial literacy curriculum. In some there is, and, and in others there's not. It's not um, adopted across the globe. I would just say I can give you my own experience, why I'm personally passionate about it, aside from the fact that it's my job to be passionate <laughs> about it. But I have two young boys. One is now a senior in high school, and he had come to me last year, and we were talking about classes, and I, I was like, oh, do you have a financial literacy class? And he said, no. He was like, but I'm good. He's like, because... You know, I got the guidance and the teachers told me all I need to do is pay off my credit card bill, the minimum payment every month, and I'll be okay because I was telling him he needs to build credit. And I was like, wait a minute. I'm sorry, what would you say? And he was like, I just need to pay the minimum payment every month, and I'm in good shape. And I was horrified because, of course, I work for a bank, and I was like, we need to have a financial literacy class. We need to sit down and walk you through what the impact of making only a minimum payment would be. And so you think about that's my son who, you know, has access to me to be able to teach him that, thank goodness. But there's many, many other kids that they have no idea the impact of making that minimum payment or not realizing that getting a credit card is important to building credit or the loan decisions that are going to come down when looking at schools and how many loans they take out and what the payment back is going to look like or that first time home and what you need to be able to build up to be able to cross that threshold to get your first time home. Do you think that banks, a bank like Webster, experiences uh, interaction with adults who you might think clearly did not have some sort of a uh, finance lab, uh, classes to learn about uh, just basic finances? Of course. And actually, I'm glad you touched upon that because, you know, we're talking about the Wakeman Finance Lab and, and we're very proud of that. But we go beyond that and we actually have launched community liaison officers across our market area. And these folks are brought on board specifically to help guide people through. They are out in the community. They're performing financial literacy classes. They're doing first time homeowner workshops and they're specifically trying to help people achieve that dream of home ownership and hold their hands and guide them with what the products are that are out there, what the different programs are that can help people achieve what they're trying to. It has to be at all ends. So yes, we're targeting um, young people with our finance lab because we believe you have to start at a young age, but we are deeply committed to making sure that folks that did not have the ability to get that education early on make sure that they have access to that education now through our first-time homebuyer workshops and our financial literacy workshops that we're offering throughout the community. And what ages will be included in the Wakeman's Boys and Girls Club Finance Lab in Bridgeport? I'm pretty sure it's primarily targeting the high school age range because the, the specific clubhouse that's being opened up on Madison Avenue is right down the street from the high school. So that's going to be the target market. And when we talk about a lab generally, Maybe experiments come to mind, uh, like in a science lab. What kinds of uh, programs or classes or activities will uh, this lab offer the students? So the students are going to be offered a variety of things, curriculum specifically designed to financial literacy. Students will also have 
uh, access to Webster colleagues that will come in and volunteer their time. There's opportunities for colleagues to come in and be part of panels so that students can learn about careers in financial institutions because everybody, or at least I shouldn't say everybody, I could use my own experience. I often thought of the only career in financial services was from a teller in a bank because that was my experience. And I've come to learn that there's tellers in um, banks, but there's also marketing and there's human resources and there's corporate responsibility and finance. And, you know, there's all different career pathways for students that they might not have been exposed to. And we're going to give them the opportunity to have some exposure to that as well. I'm speaking with Marissa Weedner, the Chief Corporate Responsibility Officer of Webster Bank in Stanford, about a new finance lab that will be opening up at the Wakeman Boys and Girls Club in Bridgeport later this year. The Webster Bank press release says that the lab will work to help students develop skills that will lead to economic empowerment and financial success. Uh, that's a quote. And I'm wondering, what does what does that look like, economic empowerment and financial success? Is it different for different students? So what that looks like is the ability, again, to make financially sound decisions that can enable somebody to start building their own wealth. And how many times do we not have the information that we need to make those financially sound decisions? And when we make those financially sound decisions, then we feel economically empowered. Now we can start making decisions and hopefully get to a place where we're establishing the seedlings of creating generational wealth that might not have been available prior to having this education. So that's really what we're talking about here. Like I said, exposure to the different careers, of course, but distilling all of the information that's out there and helping young people figure out, read through all of the advertisements and understand what are the products and services that are available to me? What should I be leveraging? What makes sense for the future that I want? In some cases, you might have a variety of opportunities to go to very expensive schools. In some cases, that might be the right path. That school might be the path that makes a lot of sense for that student based on where they want to have their you know, education, what outcomes they desire, et cetera. But in some cases, it might make more sense to go to a school that might not be as expensive but can provide the education path that that student desires. But how do you suss through all of that and make the right decisions so that you can really determine what's going to be my real return on investment here? What is my trajectory? Where do I want to be? What does my future look like and how do I enable myself to get there by understanding all of the information that's available, not just hearing it, but really understanding it and being able to make the decisions for my future that are going to enable me to start seeing that return. How many times do we hear about people are strapped with student loans for years and years and years and they can't get out from underneath it? So how, how do we enable people to kind of get out from underneath that before they're even underneath it? The latest U.S. Census shows that the per capita income in Bridgeport is uh, just under $26,000 a year, and 23% of the city residents deal with poverty in some way, shape, or form. Do you know the financial situation of the students who are likely to be using the lab, the financial situations that they're facing, and does that affect the kinds of uh, courses that you include in the curriculum? Yes, yeah, so we will take our guidance obviously from Wakeman Boys and Girls Club, and we're working in partnership to develop the curriculum that's needed based on the population that's there. We do know that 
it's going to be primarily um, the low to moderate income population, which is exactly our target. That's who we seek to serve because that's how you start moving away from poverty and towards um, creating and establishing generational wealth. And that's what we'd like to see happen as a result. So in terms of the specific curriculum, it's always designed in partnership with whom we're executing with. So as an example, we have a finance lab in Yonkers with YPI Yonkers Partnership in Education. We have another finance lab program in the Bronx with Eagle Academy through their schools. So we take the guidance from the partners based on what the needs are. They, they have the track record and the experience in terms of what the true community needs are, and we're helping them by providing financing, but also an investment of our time. And I think that's really important is throwing money at something doesn't necessarily resolve it. It's important. Money matters. There's no doubt about it. But but investing our time and our colleagues' time and making sure that we can really see the impact is important to us. You know, speaking of Bridgeport, you mentioned, you know, the fact that the community is definitely stricken with, with poverty. One of the other things that we've done is we announced recently an investment in the Bridge on Main project. We've committed to $750,000 to, you know, talk about young people, but you also talk about adults. We've invested money there to um, help people that are impacted by the system, system impacted individuals to be able to come out and reduce that rate of, never say the word, recidivism. (laughs) I can never say that word, so forgive me. But really trying to make sure that people are equipped to kind of get their feet on the ground and get the jobs that they need. The Bridge on Main is going to provide all the wraparound services, whether it be mental health or workforce training or job placement. But Webster is going to be the premier banking partner, and we're going to have financial literacy courses offered, and we're going to have banking services that are going to be available to folks as well. You mentioned the two labs in New York, Yonkers and the Bronx. What role do you think finance labs can play in the economy of, in this case, communities of Bridgeport, but in any community where where students can uh, take advantage of this sort of thing? I think you're going to see an impact. I think you're going to see just by, by having that education and that awareness, people start making different decisions, which can, in my opinion, really turn around a community and enable folks to start planting those seeds, if you will, for creating generational wealth, whether it's a savings mechanism and understanding compounding interest and and what that looks like and how you can actually make your dollar go further. If we don't have access to that information and we don't know, then we can't expect that, that that's going to happen. But when we start making that more broadly available and people understanding how far their dollar can be stretched or better yet, different mechanisms to save and make that exponentially more in the future, I think it can turn around communities over time, right? It's not the only answer, but it's helpful. And I think that it's our job to try and enable folks to have the opportunities to level the playing field. Have you learned anything? Has the lab learned anything from those experiences that um, could be instructive in how you approach the one in Bridgeport, the new lab in Bridgeport? Flexibility is key. I would say that that's the, that's the learning, um, making sure that we're not coming in and saying this is the program, this is exactly how it has to be run because we know it works. That's 
that's not the answer. What, what the answer is, is understanding what the need is of that nonprofit, what they're trying to achieve, what our need is, what we're trying to achieve, and partnership and collaboration to develop a program that's going to work from both perspectives. I'd say that's probably the biggest takeaway in terms of working on these finance labs. The other thing is helping to guide students beyond high school. And the partners that we've worked with so far also work with students to ensure that they get into their first year, two years of college, because that gives them the partnership and the network, if you will, to enable them to be successful. So those are some kind of key takeaways. We're very excited about the Finance Lab program, so much so that obviously we've announced three. We're working on vetting partners for the future announcements. We will expand this program across Connecticut and across our footprint. So we're very excited about the program. For students who don't want to or maybe don't plan to go to college, is this kind of lab experience helpful for their futures? Absolutely. Financial literacy is important for any individual because making decisions, I I know I spoke a lot about making financially sound decisions when it comes to making choices around school. Mm. So that's because so many students are looking at those decisions. But we need to be able to make financially sound decisions regardless of what that looks like in our lives, whether it's rent payments versus saving for a down payment to be able to buy a home or credit cards and the utilization of credit cards, et cetera. So I would say that this is absolutely viable for any individual. We happen to be targeting young people in our finance labs, and we're partnering with nonprofit partners that have the track record of executing with young people. But financial literacy is a critical skill for any individual walking the planet, in my opinion, that is in a position to make purchases in one way, form, or another. As we mentioned, Webster Bank has given the Wakeman Boys and Girls Club $100,000 for its first year of the finance lab. What happens after that? We are evaluating each finance lab after that. So that's the initial investment The initial investment includes getting the right curriculum, getting the hardware that might be needed. We will be reviewing what the impact is, how successful it is, and making our decisions for the future go forward from there. Marissa Widener is the Chief Corporate Responsibility Officer for Webster Bank. We've been talking about the finance lab that is being set up with Webster and the Wakeman Boys and Girls Club, which will be opening later this year in Bridgeport. Thank you so much for your time and uh, sharing that information about the Finance Lab with us. We appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, we'll take a quick break. Uh, Right now, though, we'll listen to the production director here at WSHU, Julie Fredino, and our digital editor, Alicia D'Addario, who will share how they learned about finances. I think it started with my student loan. I went to college in the 90s. I think that was when credit card companies first started showing up on college campuses, giving kids like, hey, you're away from school. You need an emergency credit card. That was also like right after the big recession of the 80s. You know, my parents were able to put my brother and sister through college relatively easily. But then when it came time for me, it was difficult. There wasn't money left. So I had two jobs and I was paying for half of college. My parents were paying for the other half. There were a couple of times where I had to put tuition payments on a credit card. 
I think I was able to get a student loan my junior and senior year. I didn't know what a loan was, you know, or what interest was. And I paid the interest while I was still in school. And I think that happened by accident. And when I got out, my payments were much lower than everybody else, you know, I went to school with. So that's when I kind of learned about interest and keeping your interest rates down and how if you delay that, it'll come back to bite you. You know, I always had my grandmother in my ear. She was born in 1918 and lived through the depression. And she kept saying, if you don't have the money for it, don't buy it. It was more just kind of by watching, you know, watching my parents. My mom has always worked two jobs as far as I can tell. So I understood from kind of a young age just how much value comes from working hard. And, you know, my dad also works two jobs. So that was kind of instilled in me. And even to this day, you know, past jobs, I've worked two jobs just to kind of one to pay the bills and then one to to go on vacation or have some fun. And I feel like watching my parents also made me more on the frugal side. You know, I'm very cautious with what I spend my money on. Um, just because again, I, I watched how hard they worked and I'm like, oh, okay, that's how, that's how much a dollar is worth. Michelle Condorino is the executive director of Open Doors of Norwalk. This nonprofit helps people caught in the cycle of homelessness find their way towards stable housing. An important piece of that puzzle is understanding how to handle money. The Open Doors Financial Opportunity Center works with the people they serve to improve their understanding of finances. We've spoken with Michelle before about how having a stable place to live affects health. And today we've asked her to explain how financial literacy can help people find and keep that place to live. And Michelle Condorino joins me now via Zoom. Uh, again, hello. Welcome to the show. Hi. Thank you for having me back. Certainly. How about a definition first? We throw that term around financial literacy. What does that actually mean? You know, that's such a great question because I think a lot of people are put off by that phrase. For us, that means understanding the way finances affect your life, credit, your debt income ratio. These things are really important to being able to get loans, to being able to sometimes rent an apartment. You know, people do credit checks. For us, it's about understanding how your finances impact your life how you can better manage your finances and how you can plan for your future and make your money work for you. Now, you've worked for nearly 20 years in human services uh, and mental health services and helping people to find stable housing, as we've talked about before. And in that time, you've observed how well-informed or not people are when it comes to managing their finances. Do, do people really realize how much or how little they know about that and and how it impacts their lives? Do they even, again, it's sort of asking, do they know what they don't know? No. 
<laughs> I think most people don't know what they don't know when it comes to uh, managing their finances. And it's often when someone is trying to buy a car or looking at home ownership that they realize what their credit scores are or what their debt income ratio is, what their credit card utilization is and how those things impact their ability you know, to be able to achieve their own personal goals. You mentioned before how people are sometimes put off by just the term financial literacy. It can be intimidating. Have you found, again, over the years that most people really do have the basic skills necessary to understand this, that it's really not beyond comprehension for, for you know, the average individual? I think what people understand is how to budget their money to be able to meet their expenses. And a lot of people, particularly low income people, are very good at making their money work to pay their bills. They're very creative in how they do that. But it's a very day to day, paycheck to paycheck way of looking at money. And what we're trying to do is help people think about how do you make your money work for you in the long run? I think one of the things that people often are put off by is when you start talking about finances, they immediately think you're going to tell them they can't spend their money on this or that. I love this. You're going to tell me I have to cut that out. And for us, it's really, this is your life. This is your money. You can spend it how you want, but we want to just help you understand the full picture so you're making an informed decision. Why did you open the Financial Opportunity Center section of Open Doors in the first place? So when the pandemic hit, we knew right away that this was going to be an economic crisis and that if we didn't help people now, you know, as the pandemic progressed, we were only going to see people sliding into homelessness. And so we really wanted to put forth a really solid program. The model was given to us by uh, LISC. So LISC stands for Local Initiative Support Corporation. It's a national organization. This is their model. And so we adopted uh, their model sort of at the front end of our system to be able to help people stay stable in their housing and have financial stability as well. How long has the center been uh, been doing that as far as the financial literacy uh, element goes? Uh, so our Financial Opportunity Center has been operational for two years. Uh, we opened in March of 2021, and it's been a really interesting journey in helping people with sort of the basics up to some really complicated financial issues and challenges um, that we've helped people resolve that I think that they wouldn't have been able to figure out on their own because so many of these systems are very complicated, require a lot of documentation, and a lot of people, I think, give up. Do you bring in experts or people in the complicated industries to to help teach your clients about financial literacy? Absolutely. This is not something that an organization can just think they can learn on the job. You have to bring in experienced staff to be able to have these conversations. And, you know, we're very fortunate to have a community of like investors and bankers that want to use their expertise to help people maximize their income. 
Do you find at all that you've got to convince clients that the experts who you bring in from the finance industry, from from banking, convince them that they're not there to confuse them further, to take advantage of what they don't know? Because there's, you know, certainly... Uh, some skepticism when it comes to uh, trusting some organizations that handle Absolutely. this kind of money. Absolutely. I think trust is so important when you're talking to people about their money. And that's true for everyone, right? We don't want to like invest our money with somebody that we don't understand what they're saying or we, you know, you know, just don't trust the institution themselves. So for us, it's a lot about education. Let's get you familiar with the terms, right? So that when you're having these conversations, they're not going over your head. And then you feel like, well, this is beyond anything that I uh, I can figure out. You know, a lot of companies have 401ks. They have all of these opportunities for investing money or making your money work for you that people aren't taking advantage of because they are confused by them and they don't understand how they work. And so for us, it's really about bringing in experts to explain these in real layman's terms so that people are comfortable making informed decisions. And what decisions they make are up to them. But we want to make sure that they have that you know base of knowledge so that way they know they're making the right decision for themselves. How do you know that uh, the the teaching has been successful with uh, any individual client? You know, we just hear stories and, you know, stories come through um, the agency. And, you know, we just had someone that we were able to uh, prevent a foreclosure. That was a lot of working through with the bank and negotiating, you know, new terms. And but, you know, this person wrote a letter to their uh, the financial manager and, and to the income benefits staff of the FOC and said, you know, this Easter, I'm able to have dinner with my family in my home mm. without fear that I'm going to lose it. And, you know, we actually had a conversation yesterday, the team and I, about how do we define success here? Yeah. And we kind of agreed that it's that exhale, you know, when people are like, okay, I may not have all my problems solved today, but I have a roadmap of how I'm going to get there. And don't we all feel better when we have an idea of how things are going to go and a way out of darkness? And that's that's how we're sort of defining success there. We've been talking about um, clients of uh, Open Doors uh, taking advantage of the Financial Opportunity Center that you have. How about other people, uh, residents of Norwalk, who aren't necessarily uh, looking for for help with with housing? Are are they able to um, to take advantage of this too? Absolutely. Our Mm. Financial Opportunity Center is open to anyone in the greater Norwalk area who is interested in being assessed for income benefits, employment services and workforce development, and long-term financial coaching. Uh, Many takers? We are very busy. (laughs) Uh, We serve about 300 people a year through that program, which, you know, represents, um, you know, large households as well. So, you know, in total, I think the the program's impacting about 1,000 people a year. Financial coaching, not necessarily the same as uh, financial literacy. What does that mean? So financial coaching, I think, is more personal. 
Financial literacy can mean sort of the overarching themes, but financial coaching is saying, let's look at you. Let's look at your goals. Let's look at your finances and find a roadmap forward. And then we have um, resources that we bring to the table. So we have a savings match program in which people um, can save up to six months. We're looking for them to save $400. When they do so, we will match them $600. We're doing a one to 1.5 match. And so they'll have $1,000 of crisis money because we know how many people can really fall into serious crisis over what is often a couple hundred dollars of an expense that they could not, you know, afford. And they didn't know anybody else that could loan them the money to pay off. Do people come to you with income tax problems? And is that something you deal with? We partner with an organization called Simplify CT, and they uh, do free tax preparation for people in Fairfield County. And so we have a direct portal to them. Last year, they were actually on site with us. This year, we're referring people to uh, the South Norwalk Library, which is just down the street. Another term using uh, financial in its its wording is financial stability. What would it take to ensure financial stability? Is, Is that having access to a living wage without working three jobs? Is it um, something that's different individual to individual or family to family? I think it's very individualized. You know, there are a lot of factors uh, that come into play. But for us, financial stability is where you don't think about your finances with panic, uh, but you think about your financial status and stability as where are you going? right? Like looking forward. And I think that's the way we should all be approaching our finances is how is my money today going to help me tomorrow? If someone were to ask you where and when should they start learning good financial habits, uh, where does that occur and when does it occur? I think those conversations should be happening as soon as someone is able to have a conversation. Um, uh, But certainly I would love for us to be doing that more in our school systems. I think that there's a lot about the way our country operates that is very tied to your credit. So for us to not be educating people about credit, I think is a real mistake. And then, you know, certainly following their, their family's finances, and how their parents are, are you know, uh, managing their finances. It's always helpful to see those things in practice because you can learn lessons, you can learn terms, but if you never see them applied, it's more challenging. And then thinking about, you know, debt at a very early age. I think the last time I was here, I was talking about, um, you know, on college campuses, they're trying to sell these credit cards. People are starting off their adulthood in debt. I mean, they're already going to do that with school loans. If if they're, you know, if they're taking out school loans, they don't need to add to it with unnecessary debt. So really thinking about the decisions you make today are going to impact your life moving forward. And you want to be thinking about how you gain wealth throughout your life. And the earlier you start that conversation with yourself, the better. And where can people get more information about services through Open Doors of Norwalk as far as financial 
uh, literacy goes. Yes. So um, people can go to our website, which is opendoorsct.org. They can certainly call our uh, main line, which is 203-866-1057. And we will bring them in for an intake and explain the services in more detail. And we have Facebook pages, and there's a lot of places where people can engage with information. We're constantly offering financial literacy courses and workshops to help people in different areas of financial literacy and understanding how to, again, advance yourself uh, moving forward. Uh, We're partnering with the uh, Housing Development Fund to talk about home ownership and what's the process for first-time home buyers. So that way, getting people into the idea that home ownership can be for them too. It's not just something for wealthy people. Anyone can be a homeowner. It just takes maybe more time to save up the money, build up your credit. But all of that stuff is attainable. And with the way rents are increasing in our area, home ownership is a much more wise financial decision than I think it's ever been. For people who come across your website or uh, hear about you who are not from the greater Norwalk area, can you refer people to other similar organizations elsewhere in the state, in Connecticut? Absolutely. We want to help people, you know, achieve no matter where they live. And so if there's another financial opportunity center um, near them, uh, wherever they live in the state, we'll certainly refer them there. Or if there's another similar organization, we will try to connect them. Michelle Condorino is the executive director of Open Doors of Norwalk. Thank you so much again for your time and uh, letting us know something about financial literacy and how to uh, how to get up to speed on it. Thank you so much. I love talking about this because I think it's such an exciting opportunity for people to really make long-term, you know, advancements in their life. It's really exciting to be a part of this program. And now let's hear how another member of our staff learned about money, handling money. WSHU reporter Desiree Diorio says the pandemic transformed her financial outlook. About five years ago or so, I really started to get serious about money. I'd been throwing money pretty haphazardly at my debt, depending on, you know, who was yelling at me the loudest to pay up. And it was just this terrible cycle of not really getting anywhere with saving and also paying ridiculously high interest rates on my private student loans and on my credit cards. So then in 2020, the pandemic started, and that's when things really changed for me personally. Number one, practically everything shut down. So there were very few opportunities to even spend money, right? Number two, I qualified for pandemic unemployment because I'm also self-employed. Number three, and this is a big one, my federal student loans went on holiday, and they still are to this day. So that was about $500 a month right there that I was saving. And then number four, for a good chunk of 2020 where I had you know, very little work and (laughs) nothing to actually go out and do, I was really able to spend time researching stuff. So I organized all my debt from highest interest to lowest so I could figure out what 
to pay off first. I had time to research my 401k options, you know, learn how to make a budget, that kind of stuff. So it's kind of this weird situation, right, where obviously the pandemic was awful. The, the, the loss of life, the loss of businesses, all of that was absolutely awful. For me personally, I came out on the other side of that with, you know, a pretty substantial savings that I've never had before and, you know, a better grasp on money and how fluid the economy is where one day you have a job and one day you might not. So a higher appreciation for for those kinds of things. So it's kind of weird. Knowing how to manage your personal finances is, of course, important. But what about understanding how economic systems work? The view from, say, 30,000 feet. Well, the public radio program Marketplace, which you hear every weekday evening at 6.30, and as the Marketplace Morning Report during Morning Edition on WSHU, has created Econ Extra Credit, Econ 101 Project. It's an online introductory course to economics and Uh, Speaking of money, it's free. Marketplace newsletter editor Tony Wagner heads up Econ 101, and he joins us via Zoom. Tony, welcome to The Full Story. Hey, Tom. Thanks for having me. Certainly. Uh, First, what is Econ Extra Credit and Econ 101? It sounds like a couple of different entities. Yeah, we have a a newsletter around here that we've been doing for a few years called Econ Extra Credit, and uh, it started out with David Brancaccio from the Marketplace Morning Report. He was really interested in, I, I don't remember if it was a, a New Year's resolution or just you know <laughs> personal improvement. He, he wanted to read an economics textbook and give himself a refresher. And he started this newsletter, invited the listeners to read with him. And it was in, I think, January, 2020 when that launched. And so that the, the textbook is 12 chapters long. It took him through 12 weeks and you know, we were all stuck inside our homes for a big chunk of that time. So it was actually taking a lot of economic fundamentals and applying them to the situation people were seeing, you know, out through their windows or on their televisions. We were amazed at the interest uh, in it. I mean, I think it came at, you know, a terrible time for the country, but a good time where people are looking to improve and and get some, some reading done that maybe they'd put off for a long time. It was a big success for us. And so we recently just didn't the past few months have kind of been updating that material and going back through this great textbook uh, from a nonprofit consortium called Core Econ. Uh, it's like an open source free textbook. And um, yeah, just updating th- those emails, kind of making them a little more evergreen, a little less tied right to the pandemic. And that, gonna... so that's how it started. It's kind of one thing grew into the other. So it sounds like the pandemic really was part of the impetus to get this thing, uh, get this thing rolling. Well, it was started before the pandemic, but it definitely, you know, I was revisiting those old newsletters and kind of preparing our materials for this course that we're doing. And you kind of can't avoid it when you're reading about the fundamentals of, say, supply and demand. And then you can see, you know, on your store shelves, I'm sure people remember, uh, you know, not being able to find pantry staples, uh, not being able to find toilet paper, things like that. You know, lessons about early in the textbook, there are lessons around the tragedy of the commons and, and what happens when people aren't incentivized to, you know, not hoard things or use more resources than they need. You were seeing it play out. And so um, it, it was something that we really tapped into. And it was a good time to learn some economics fundamentals so, so that people could understand what they were seeing, you know, when they go to the grocery store. Uh, most programs look to inform their listeners or their viewers. 
Why does Marketplace look to teach instead of just inform? Well, I think it's something we've been interested in for a long time around Marketplace. I've been at the show about eight years, and I've heard it since the very beginning, interest in, in teaching. We, we've partnered with more education-minded organizations a lot as long as I've been there. And, you know, I think they have to go hand in hand because, you know, every day uh, on the show, your listeners will hear us talk about the 10-year treasury note and what stock prices did today when we do the numbers. And, you know, a lot of people, certainly for me, I guess, before I started working there, these numbers just kind of washed over me. You would know what was good and what was bad, or if they were good or bad by the music that we played underneath uh, (laughs) the the numbers. But yeah, (laughs) yeah, but I think it's, uh, you know, there's not always a lot of time in a daily news show to we give a lot of context, you know, to the news of the day, but not necessarily the larger economic forces at work. So it, it was important to us. And, and we saw an interest uh, from our listeners back in 2020 of really digging in and taking some time, stepping out of the news and really understanding that. And then I, th- I think, I hope that people will do this program that they can sign up, you know, anytime and th- they'll run through some of this course and read some of the textbook and it'll help them understand our show better. So it, it, I think it really is a uh, a beneficial cycle for everybody. You mentioned this before, the the online textbook through an international project called CORE, C-O-R-E, Curriculum Open Access Resources in Economics. Sounds like a rather challenging, maybe intimidating title. Of Tell us more about CORE and the educational materials that are available for people who participate in uh, Econ 101. Sure. Yeah. So we have a link when you sign up, you can get a link to their ebook. I think it's available also on, on the usual services for free. Yeah. They're, they're a nonprofit gather economists from all around the world. They actually do a lot of curriculum and quizzes and things like that and, and are taught in classrooms. And we've interviewed folks uh, on our show who, who teach the same textbook in their, in their college classrooms. The particular book that we chose is geared toward uh, non-economics majors. They have a a sister book that is a little more mathy, uh, a little more complex, and um, the book that we're using, Economy, Society, and Public Policy, there's uh, an inequality lens applied to a lot of the lessons in the book, and there's the role that government plays in, in regulation and, and taxation. It's an easier way in for us, and and I hope for our listeners to you know start to apply some of what you're learning to the real world, and it's not not quite as abstract. What have you heard from listeners who have taken the course? They find it too, too hard. Uh, easy enough to stick with? Uh, what have you heard? You know, it's a 12-week program uh, that we launched in in January. So the very, very first folks who signed up are just kind of finishing up now. We've heard good things. You know, it is a, a bit of an undertaking. We've sort of created these emails that you get on a, a weekly cadence that will walk you through the basics of what was in a given chapter of the book. But you know, I, th- I think people are enjoying it, and I think it is helping them kind of understand better. The response we've gotten just in terms of signups has been really phenomenal. Uh, and we're actually going to have uh, tomorrow, we're doing a live on Zoom Q&A with uh, two of the economists who wrote on the book. And, and so I, I'll be interested to hear what, you know, what questions people bring to that session. I wonder, too, through the responses that you've heard from participants, if you've gotten enough of these, has it uh, clued you in at all about what people need to know about economics, where they feel they're lacking? Just in the past couple of weeks, we're getting a lot of questions about bank failures and thankfully things have kind of calmed down now but the potential you know crisis in the banking sector as well as crypto and and how those two things the idea of decentralized finance how those things play with each other um people really want uh i think to feel a little more grounded in those markets and how those things work and and what we're really seeing a lot is people and i was so glad that you guys got in touch 
because uh, people want to see how they can apply these things to their daily life. I mean, like I said, we could talk about bond yields or something, but if people don't hold bonds themselves, then maybe you're not sure what to do with that information or or how to you know maybe get started if they do want to buy bonds. So we're really on the stuff that I work on on marketplace. We're really trying to focus on things that are actionable that help people's day to day lives. So we've got a few questions about crypto and, and bank bailouts. It's interesting to hear that a bank failed, I guess, but if they don't have money in the bank, people want to know how it's going to ripple out and affect them. And so that's what we really try to focus on. Uh, your website describes the project as learning and relearning introductory economics with help from an open source textbook. Uh, mm-hmm. Interesting relearning. Why is it important to relearn this information through the course? I think in David's case, uh, I think he mentioned on our show that he took Econ 101 back in college. For him, that was in the the Carter administration. For me, I only ever took an economics class in journalism school that was about the economics of journalism. I I never took a broader econ class. I didn't think I would be working at a business, uh, an economics news show. You know, I think when you're 19, 20, you feel very uh, academic and not applicable to your day-to-day life. And then 10, 15 years later, your bank is failing or something and, and, or, you know, there's this exciting new asset and it's important to, you know, in that new context, I think to, to brush up on some of the fundamentals and at least for me, I mean, I went through the book with our listeners along with my writing partner on this project and I've learned a lot and it's helped me kind of orient myself better in the, in the news as well. So I think it's really important to, to just kind of stay brushed up on these things. I'm sure my uh, high school economics teacher, Mr. Hicks, would be impressed that I'm interviewing somebody about economics uh, because (laughs) back then, and I'll share that was during the Nixon administration, (laughs) I I wasn't catching on quite so quickly. Uh, You mentioned uh, how, uh, you know, understanding economic systems can kind of help people uh, in their day-to-day lives. Do you have an example or two of that that shows people the big issues you know, they can take hold of those and, and, and make decisions for their own personal use based on that? Sure. Yeah. We just left tax season. I think that, you know, a big focus in the book that we're using for this course is on the role of government and on the role of taxes and, and the different levers that the government can pull to engineer certain outcomes, try to build efficiencies and, and things. And we've seen a lot of interest this year on Tax credits for electric vehicles. Our listeners really want to know, uh, you know, what's eligible, what's not, who's cutting their prices, and learning a little bit about the, the levers the government is pulling and why. With those, you know, whether you agree with the the idea of doing tax breaks for electric vehicles or not, I think it's interesting to learn, you know, why the government would want to engineer things that way and, and incentivize behavior rather than, you know, some you hear some people getting up in arms about, oh, the, in California they want to ban all gas vehicles a big reach as opposed to, you know, levers and dials to to try to, you know, engineer things and, and make the market a little more efficient and fair for everybody. It's it's made me think about those things differently as I'm thinking about decisions in my life. Is there homework for Econ 101? <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, you know, we, I, I think the book has little quizzes and things you can do throughout to sort of check your understanding and, and they have exercises in the book as well. Uh, for us, you know, we're trying to tie it into the news. Like I said, Core, the publisher of this textbook, is a is an international consortium. They're based in Europe, so we're you know kind of Americanizing it a bit, bringing in some real world examples from our coverage at Marketplace. So uh, we have other things, you know, rabbit holes people can go down if they want as they move through the course. But uh, you know, you don't have to. I think um, I'm just excited if people 
sign up and read a few things. I think even just knocking out a couple chapters, you're going to learn a lot from this. And does this work for people who have not signed up but sort of at the beginning of the course back in January? I, I think you mentioned uh, it, it got underway. What if what if someone heard the program tomorrow and decide, you know what, I, I'd like to sign up for this? Are they missing part of the course or is this sort of a an ongoing course that they can get involved with at any time and either catch up or get all the information? No, yeah, anytime. I, I hope they do. It's, yeah, the original incarnation of this was more of a weekly newsletter that was kind of on the news. Uh, but what we've done here now is if you go to marketplace.org slash crash course is our site, that's the broader program that we're in here. You sign up and you get the first lesson sent to your email that day, and then you get the subsequent lessons every seven days. You can sign up anytime and work at your own pace. You're not going to miss anything. Tony Wagner is the Marketplace newsletter editor, and he heads up Econ 101. Tony, thanks for your time today. We appreciate it, and we'll, I guess as they say, see you on the radio or online. <laughs> thanks so much, Tom. Really appreciate it. Sure. Another break is coming up, but uh, before we do that, let's listen to the Director of Engineering here at WSHU, Kurt Hansen. He shares how he and his wife challenged their children to understand the value of money. Spring break just happened, and my kids are like, oh, hey, can I buy the blah, 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 you know, thing? And I'm like, okay, well, we can buy this now. However, mom and dad have allotted X number of dollars for you to spend on this trip. So if you buy this on day one of the trip, you can have nothing for the rest of the week. Is that really what you want to do? And sadly, they always bought the thing. <laughs> you know, they're all about instant gratification. Then the rest of the week, they were very, very sad. And then I'd say, hey, look, on Monday, didn't you get that nice, shiny, wonderful? Yeah, but, you know, I really want this to. Like, well, you know, maybe you shouldn't, you know, have uh, spent your entire budget on day one. And hey, my, my this vacation is nine days long, and <laughs> now you got no money. You know, don't come crying to me. Uh, so hard lesson to learn, I suppose, but it's an important lesson to learn. Our kids haven't had to see that you know daily exchange in the grocery store checkout line, or you know while parents are sitting there pay, writing out checks, paying bills. Heck, there is no writing in, out checks anymore. It's just all online auto payment. So. It's hard for young people, in my opinion, to have that, you know, daily or monthly existence, you know, monitoring your parents and how they interact with money because it doesn't exist anymore. You know, everything's all auto pay. It hit, you know, money's taken either out of my bank account or it hits my credit card automatically. And so they don't see dad sitting at the dining room table, you know, with a mountain of bills, you know, sweating and cursing and swearing, you know, paying yet another bill. We ask one of our producers here on The Full Story, Sacred Heart University fellow Sophie Kamizzi, about uh, how she learned to handle money. And she says she learned how to be conservative with money by observing her mom's work ethic. Yeah, my mom used to work probably from sunrise, from 8 a.m. to sunset to like 8 p.m. My mom used to work like 12-hour shifts, so I never really got to see her growing up. And she was a nurse. My mom was the sole provider of my household growing up. Um, she was very frugal with herself, but she also provided anything that my sister and I would ask for. 
but we also, you know, learn not to take advantage of that. And we never really asked for anything. That taught me to conserve my money. And that money was a very valuable asset to us. And she always taught us about, you know, her stories growing up poor and working her way up to what I would consider now to be middle to middle upper class. We knew that we are privileged, but we also know how hard it is, takes to become that way. Our show today was produced by Fatou Sangare, along with Sophie Kamizzi, Sayana Bosch, and senior producer Ann Lopez. I'm Tom Kuzer. Thank you for listening to The Full Story.